This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am pleased today to welcome Lauren S. Foley, author of On the Basis of Race, How Higher Education Navigates Affirmative Action Policies. Alas, very timely indeed, new from NYU Press. Lauren, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so before we home in specifically on the book, I wonder if you might tell folks just a little bit about uh, who you are and how you came to this project. Yeah, absolutely. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Western Michigan University, and this book actually grew out of my dissertation. So uh, it has been about 10 plus years in the making that I've been studying this issue, which means that I actually do not have a crystal ball. I did not know that it would be published a mere months after the Supreme Court uh, banned affirmative action nationally. Um, it came out of my just interest in what happens after law is enacted and how social movements um, pursue their policy goals and pursue social change, and then how the targets of law mediate that impact, whether they expand it or whether they minimize it. Um, I wish I had a crystal ball. I would certainly buy lottery tickets if that was the case. <laughs> and I would ask you for some numbers as well. Um, so why don't we we start there? This, this uh, as, as you suggested, happened uh, after the book went to press. But for folks who may not know, talk a little bit, if you would, about the most recent Supreme Court case about affirmative action. And then we can use our, our, that as a way to segue into what the previous status quo was. So what, what did they just do? Absolutely. Uh, the Students for Fair Admissions case came down uh, just a, a little bit ago in June 2023. We have Chief Justice Roberts writing the majority opinion. And uh, what the majority essentially says is that universities can no longer uh, use race as a benefit in a student's admissions application. They cannot practice what we've referred to as affirmative action anymore. Um, race can still come in. Students can talk about race in their essays. Perhaps they talk about how discrimination based on race affected them, um, how they talk about perhaps being the, a leader in a, a cultural or, or racial affiliated organization and how that leadership has played a role in their lives. But universities can no longer use race as race for um, 
benefiting or giving some kind of a plus or boost to a student's admissions application. So as has been this court's want, I think it's fair to say this is uh, stare decisis be damned, right? This is overturning decades worth of, of precedent that did permit uh, the use of race under certain circumstances in admissions policy. So if you would just tell us a little bit about what was the status quo? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a point, too, that, that you bring up that it's worth just uh, highlighting how court watchers were not surprised by this decision. They expected this particular array of majority justices to line up against affirmative action. And yet uh, it, we should be surprised that nearly 50 years of precedent was overturned. Um, that should be a surprising thing about the Supreme Court that is um, committed to upholding its precedents and, and stare decisis. And the precedents have been that the court protects the use of race um, in university admissions policies. Um, that case was uh, in the late 1970s, um, the plurality opinion, while it struck down a medical school's use of uh, a, a quota system for uh, racial minorities, it still hypothesized that there were systems of admissions that took a, a broader look at factors of an application, used race more holistically in the process, that those might be okay. And then we saw in 2003, the court actually affirmed that process for the University of Michigan's law school. That was the Gruder case. Um, they affirmed the use of race in a more holistic way. One of many factors of a student's application that was considered um, that universities could, for the purpose of creating a racially diverse student body, that universities could use race. And then they affirmed the 2003 opinion again in 2013 and, and uh, 2016. And this was an, an argument made in, in Bakke, the 78 case, by uh, a concurring opinion by Justice Stevens, right? The sort of uh, the notion that Powell's, a diverse yep. student body, body is actually a legit goal. Yes, that Justice Powell said, hey, wait a minute. Powell, sorry, uh, yes. Having a, a diverse student body could be a compelling interest that would, under the Constitution, allow an organization to use race. And that was not the program at issue in the case. The, the program in the Bakke case was a medical schools. Right. Um, they had set aside a certain number of seats for racial minorities. The court said, can't do that. But here we have um, that Harvard University has written in an, an amicus opinion presenting their admissions process, which is more individualized, more holistic. Perhaps a university could use race that way. And so Bakke actually gave universities kind of a roadmap going forward. Um, and the University of Michigan Law School, that case in 2003, then uh, officially put the, the court's seal of approval on a more holistic, individualized admissions process where race is one of many factors considered. Perfect. Um, so let's let's let dive more specifically into to your work. Yeah. You offer in this book four case studies in what you call resistant compliance. So what does that mean? What are you talking about there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the idea behind resistant compliance is that there's a way to respond to law that complies with it, intends to comply with it, is not inviting future lawsuits, is not trying to uh, practice mass resistance to legal mandates, and yet is trying to resist them at the same time, not abandoning an organization's goals and, and commitments. And I call this resistant compliance, where the goal is to comply, but also still continue to pursue your commitments to the greatest extent possible under this new 
legal mandate. And in the book, I explore what resistant compliance looks like um, in a a school desegregation case and then in higher education affirmative action, which is the the topic of our conversation today. Terrific. Um, And that and we will. Um, just in the interest of time, we'll we'll skip over this sort of fascinating chapter two, which is about Oklahoma's efforts essentially to evade Brown versus Board of Education um, by by uh, legal means by dragging things through the court and and other kinds of delaying tactics. Um, but let's let's keep our focus uh, on affirmative action. Uh, so the the first case you offer is uh, University of Texas responding to. Uh, a Fifth Circuit uh, court decision. So maybe tell us a little bit. So what did the court do? What did it suggest had to be done? And then how did the University of Texas uh, uh, resist while complying? Absolutely. So this is the mid-1990s here. And the Fifth Circuit announces um, in a, a challenge brought to the University of Texas admissions uh, policies, the Fifth Circuit announces affirmative action is unconstitutional, kind of going against that plurality opinion in Baki that we discussed um, and saying that actually the, the diversity is not a compelling interest and, and this use of race violates the Constitution. And the Supreme Court refuses to grant cert on that case and decides not to take it up, which means that between 1996 and 2003, when the Supreme Court uh, ruled the, the Michigan cases, um, we had two different systems of law for affirmative action. We had the, the Fifth Circuit states could not practice university affirmative action in their admissions process, and other states in the country could, according to the federal courts. So Texas now finds itself banned in the practice of affirmative action, and the University of Texas, a selective national university, is competing for students out of state, competing up against other uh, national universities in the country, and and finds themselves at a disadvantage in being able to use affirmative action to uh, get a, a racially diverse student body. So what they did is actually convened what uh, a few legislators convened what they called the Academic Brain Trust, which was a bunch of of faculty members actually at the University of Texas who got together and brainstormed a legislative solution to um, increasing racial diversity at Texas in a race neutral means. And then once they kind of presented the legislators with data and a policy idea, the legislators repackaged it into legislation and then ushered it through the legislative process. And so what was what was the solution? Yeah, it was called the Texas Top 10% Plan. It guaranteed automatic admission to Texas universities to the top 10% of every individual high school. And as the faculty members, you know, noted in their research because Texas uh because the Texas high schools were so segregated, you could essentially guarantee a particular um, proportion of racial diversity by admitting the top 10% of every high school, because the top 10% of an all-black high school is also going to be all-black. And this was a way to bring in more racial minorities uh, to Texas universities, specifically the University of Texas at Austin, the most selective University in Texas, but doing so in a race-neutral means, right? This admissions advantage to the top 10% was being offered to every high school, even ones that were majority white students. 
in this this wound up this proposal, there's, I just want to sort of underline the 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 peculiar, ugly historical irony here, right? About what makes yes. it possible for the the university to be more inclusive is the the historical legacy of residential segregation. Right? Yes, I mean it, it, it's <sighs> deeply ironic, right? Yeah. That um, that the the uh, residential segregation and the resulting high schools that it produces actually allows is what allows Texas universities yeah. to maintain its racial diversity after the ban on affirmative action. But they were they weren't hiding that the goal here still was a racially diverse student body, right? You know, it's interesting. The proponents of the legislation, some would say um it's important to still pursue racial diversity in higher education. This should not be a goal that we abandon just because our primary means, affirmative action, have uh, been banned. And other proponents would say uh, what's most important is to be race neutral and to give advantages to all students who find themselves in a race neutral position here being in the top 10 percent of their class. And, and those proponents were just as likely to support the legislation. I mean, Governor George Bush is, is the one who signs it into law. So the race neutrality of it actually actually brought on racial conservatives and the race neutrality of it or the, the, the effect of it having an impact for racial minorities is what made racial progressives uh, propose it in the first place. So what was the result? The result is the top, Texas top 10 percent plan, um, and it, it helped maintain uh, a certain threshold of, of racial minorities in, in Texas universities. It actually worked quite well. It's probably the one that, that worked the best of all of the different um, policy innovations that I studied in the book. And, uh, you know, I won't get into the, the weeds of how it worked. It, it did leave some um, room for admissions officers to make some calls still race neutral in the admissions process. Uh, later in the legislature, when uh, supporters of the University of Texas were trying to gain a little more uh, leeway and latitude for the University of Texas. Um, the top 10% plan looked like it might get uh, adjusted, modified, or even thrown out entirely by the legislature. And the folks who came to its its rescue, who really supported it, were uh, rural Texas legislators representing majority white districts who said, hey, wait a minute, this helps our students too. The diversity of high schools represented at top Texas universities had increased dramatically. And now there's students from rural high schools that had never sent a student to the University of Texas before who now have access to the university. And those legislators did not want to see that uh, advantage go away. Terrific. Uh, so let's turn our attention to the next case, and that is this California uh what happens that causes them to have to rethink the University of California uh, system of admissions? Yes. So um, the University of California had a state constitutional amendment that uh, voters in their state actually went to the polls and amended the state constitution to ban affirmative action at universities. This was actually a year after the regents of the University of California had voted to ban affirmative action at the University of California. So first in 1995, the University of California comes under an affirmative action ban. And then in 1996, all public institutions in the state of California came under an affirmative action ban. And again, similar to the University of Texas, you have these top national universities, universities like uh, California Berkeley and yep. UCLA, who are competing for students from across the country. And now suddenly they can't practice affirmative action, but their peers in other states, other top universities, 
Virginia, North Carolina, Michigan, they can all practice affirmative action for students. So they find themselves at a real disadvantage in trying to maintain racial diversity in their student populations. So what do they do? What do they do? Um, again, it, it comes down to some of the specifics of the state and the university. This is a theme of the book. Context does matter. It's not possible for some states to go and just cut and paste what other states and other universities have done. California is a... Um, a has a system of many different University of California campuses, all governed by the same president and, and academic senate. So some campuses have a small amount of, of wiggle room to innovate, and then also the wider system as a whole passes down certain mandates surrounding admissions. But essentially what California does is create a new review process. It was piloted by the University of Berkeley, later adopted by the uh, wider University of, of California system as a whole, and they upend their process, sink tremendous more resources into hiring more admissions readers to read applications because they create a much more detailed, much more time intensive, much more subjective and individualized review process uh, so that they can dig into student applications and pick up on things like hardship, uh, pick up on things like uh, uh, educational disadvantage, leadership, difficult family circumstances, kind of rising above the odds, these intangible personal qualities about students, which you're really not going to get at if you are simply admitting students based on grade point average and standardized test scores alone. But, I mean, again, to, to the goal here was again where we're, we're, the theme of the book, right, is that they're resisting. They still believe that a diverse student body, among other things, has educational benefits, um, but are precluded by the law from doing that explicitly. So they're they're sort of of coming up with this this back end way again. To what extent? was this done with a wink and a nod? It's like, we are clearly still trying to build a diverse student body, but we're going to do it through this back door. Yeah. I'm, you know, I don't, I don't actually think it is as subversive as a wink and a nod. Um, okay. They were very clear about still prioritizing racial diversity. You know, diversity is important. It's an important part of their educational goals. It's an important part of their mission. They repeated things like that over and over and over again. And yet the same top level administrators who are saying we cannot abandon our mission around racial diversity are also very strongly saying we have to comply with the law. And they received a lot of flack for that. Um, the admissions director of Berkeley has this great quote where he says, you know, people were furious at me that I wasn't just outright breaking the law, outright refusing to comply with this ban on affirmative action. I realized, he says, that it is remarkably easy for people to recommend that other people break the law. And they received a lot of pushback for that from, you know, community members, faculty, um, you know, various constituencies who, who wanted them to basically practice mass resistance and refuse to comply. So the, the, an, a changed admissions review process that did more with context, more with individualized circumstances. Um, it might look like a wink and a nod, but to these administrators, it was the, the best they could do under highly constrained circumstances. They were simply not willing to, to break the law and um, practice the conscious use of race. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And this, this was a, a theme across all of your cases, right, is that these administrators not willing to, to really even countenance the possibility of, 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 right, that sort of more traditional kind of resistance, the standing in front of the schoolhouse door or whatever the metaphor would be in this instance. Is, is some of that simply that if you are rising to the level of, of president or chancellor of a system, at some level you're going to be inherently conservative and risk-averse? I mean, there there was that in my interviews. We haven't talked about Michigan yet, but there was definitely a difference in my interviews between um, interested parties in the community who didn't have any say over admissions policy. They really wanted the university to do more, do more, do more, um, cross that line even, versus the people who had a say, the top level administrators, university council, et cetera, who were saying, we cannot break the law here. We do not want to get sued again. We have to com- we have to lead with compliance, do as much as we can do, but leading with compliance. Right. And I mean, important to underline that these are all public institutions. So they run all kinds of risks should they engage in that kind of outright defiance, I presume. Yeah. And, but we've seen that kind of outright defiance before. I mean, I know, I know we're not talking about the earlier part of the book, but um, you know, it, it certainly is an option for public institutions to stand up and say, we refuse to comply. And we saw that all across the South in, in responses to Brown versus Board. And that's part of the motivating goal of this book is to say that resistance doesn't have to look like mass resistance. It can it can look like something that is actually compliance. Um, so before we turn to the Michigan case, so what, what were the enrollment effects of the California plan? Yeah, so um, depends on what university you're talking about. There's obviously this big selectivity difference across the University of California. UCLA and Berkeley are some of the hardest public universities to get into in the country. Um, you know, UC... Uh, uh, San Diego, less so, UC Riverside, et cetera. Um, so the effects on black students were most noticeable and they really, um, they were really hit and they didn't recover, um, especially in graduate school admissions. Um, they still haven't recovered. Um, other universities have, have been able to recover more of their populations or, or even have larger numbers of, of students of color than they did at the time of the bans. It really co- uh, correlates with selectivity. Um, and I rely on uh, other social science research to show what the impacts have been on specific po- subpopulations of students, but the, it tends to be that the more selective the institution, the more the absence of affirmative action has hurt their racial mm-hmm. diversity numbers. Just a separate conversation, but we can argue that that is precisely the goal. Um, let's let's yes, turn our attention, right? I mean, if if I mean this is this was actually if we think back to to the students for a fair admissions case uh, recently, this is I think in uh, the dissent was was an explicit argument made. Was it Sotomayor who wrote the main dissent said yeah. this is this is going to close down access to upward mobility for populations of color. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why North Carolina and Harvard are chosen as the as the right. institutions litigated right. against in those cases. Um, so the final case uh, in the book is University of Michigan. Uh, same same question to kick us off. What what happens that causes them to rethink their admissions policy, and what do they do? Yep, actually, so similar to California, uh, the University of Michigan faces a uh, change to its constitution in 2006. 
um, the people who lost the cases at the Supreme Court in 2003 essentially turned right around two weeks later and launched a ballot initiative campaign in the state to amend the state constitution to ban affirmative action. And they teamed up with some of the same folks in California who had just had experience there uh, a couple of years prior and were able to, to share some ideas about how to make that happen in the state. Voters go to the polls and ban affirmative action, amend the Michigan constitution in 2006. So Michigan only had three years between the uh, win at the Supreme Court, where they have the Supreme Court affirming um, that affirmative action is a constitutional use of race in university admissions. And then three years later, their state bans it. So Michigan spent a lot of money helping out other universities nationally in being able to use affirmative action is the, is the moral of the story there. Um, faculty, the administrators at Michigan saw this coming. They, they, for a couple of years, kind of saw this train coming at me, them, that voters were going to uh, to ban the Constitution. And so they started brainstorming early about what they could do in response. And what they ended up doing was repurposing computer software that had been marketed to them for a completely different purpose. Um, the College Board had created a very advanced computer software using a, a number of different uh, demographic factors about student applications to try to help universities target different kinds of students for fi- financial aid reasons. Um, it was meant to, to, to identify rich students who could pay yeah. full ride, right? Yeah. yeah. So if you do more marketing here in these neighborhoods, you might be able to attract more students who could pay full freight. Yep. And I uh, was, was selling that to enrollment directors at universities and, and the, some of the top admissions folks at Michigan hear this sales pitch and come out of that meeting and think, wait a minute. This could be it. This could be the way that we ha- have a race-neutral means to uh, resist an oncoming affirmative action ban. So they actually buy the subscription. I think it was like ten thousand um, dollars in in two thousand and five to use this software, but not for the purposes of identifying more full-pay students, but for the purposes of trying to find the most underrepresented students in their campus population. Yeah. So if they t- looked at the, the software takes all students across the country and groups them into 30 or so types of neighborhoods and 30 or so types of high schools. And these high schools have descriptions, descriptions like um, majority of students going on to four-year colleges, par- majority of parents have college educations, uh, students most likely to be able to afford uh full college tuition to another type of description might be something like in this kind of neighborhood, majority of parents do not have college degrees, small number of students are going on to college, will be high, have high financial need, right? And they actually number these neighborhoods. So uh, high school number 26 is a, is a high school where a small number are going on to college and there's a lot of financial need and a lot of educational disadvantage among those students. That certainly doesn't describe every student at that high school, but the goal of the software is to give a general description of what a, a majority number of, of students would be like. You, the University of Michigan then uses this software to tag its existing student population. Where do students who we currently have at Michigan, what kinds of high schools and neighborhoods are they coming out of? And then from that data, figures out which high school and neighborhood numbers are the most highly underrepresented on campus. Less than 5%, less than 3% of students are coming out of these numbered high schools 
um, and numbered neighborhoods. And then we'll know in the application process, when we see an application from one of those high schools or neighborhoods, we'll know that that person is highly underrepresented already at the University of Michigan. And going back to our conversation about Texas, uh, sort of what, again, the irony here is that because income and race are so closely correlated in the United States still, and because we still tend to segregate populations both by income and race, you can use that kind of income data as a proxy for race, correct? Yeah, absolutely. But it's still, I mean, it's a, it's over captures, right? So um, I'm, right. I might be getting the number wrong here, but I think it's like uh, uh, high school number 26 um, highly underrepresented at the University of Michigan, very financially needy population, very few numbers of people going on to four-year colleges, uh, very low numbers of families whose parents went to college. That describes both a high school in uh, the, the, the middle of downtown Detroit, which might be uh, majority black students, also describes a high school in the rural upper peninsula of Michigan, which would be majority white students. Both If students were to apply from both of those high schools, they would both get that high school 26 tag on their application, which would then at some point in the process, as long as they had met different academic cutoffs, might stand to benefit their application in the process. Uh, And again, what what were the results of this approach on diversity? Yeah. um, So better than uh, some of the University of California schools. Um, they were able to to rebound some of the um, the populations of of black and Latino students um, in in their student populations. Still, not a replacement tool for affirmative action, um, and uh, they've gotten a lot of pushback. Michigan has from students and community members on campus for, uh, in their eyes, not doing enough to uh, in the face of the affirmative action ban. There was a whole social movement. Uh, at the University of Michigan in, in the late 2010s called uh, hashtag being black at Michigan that uh, was really accusing the administration and the admissions office that they had failed in the face of this constitutional amendment at restoring racial minority populations on campus. Um, so the, the, the bottom line of, of the strong story of both Michigan and California, to some extent, Texas, depending on which population, is that there really is no wholesale replacement for affirmative action. That is the best admissions technique at uh, increasing the numbers of racial minorities in your student population. So a couple of final questions as we wrap up here, Lauren. Um, so given that that in these three cases, uh, uh, in, is it fair to say that in some ways these, these places are less likely to be affected by the most recent court decision because they were already operating under state or other federal court uh, provisions that, that forced them to rethink their approach to affirmative action? Yeah, I would imagine that these are the these are the grandfathers or the grandmothers of uh, policy innovation here, and other universities now, particularly more selective ones, are going to be looking at them and, and uh, asking, "What are you doing? What is working? What what has uh, what might work for me?" So, what's what's and and I know you start out by saying that you don't have a crystal ball, alas, <laughs> but but what's I mean, given given how how deeply knowledgeable you are about what at least these schools and and systems have done, what's your sense about what we can expect to see happening in other places around the country, and do you have any sense as to whether these kinds of programs are going to see court challenges as well? Yeah, so I would say I, I have kind of two predictions with my my lack of a crystal ball. Um, the first is policy innovation. 
Um, there is a lot of creativity. There is certainly a very intense commitment and mission around racial diversity. And there's been, you know, policy entrepreneurs and, and creative innovations in policy happening as a result of these bans. So I'm sure institutions will look at what has come before and they'll have to modify it. Context really mattered across all these case studies. They'll create other ideas. They'll share them across institutions. I would expect a lot of communication, learning, conferences, publications, even uh, uh, personnel changes between universities as folks are hired on from one place that mm. did one thing and, and asked to then replicate it at another I think place. you said Michigan did about hired a bunch of people from Texas. Do I remember that right? Yeah. So there's been a, a ability to survive these bans and come up with um, ideas in the face of them has, has proven to be a nice resume builder for folks um, and, and folks who piloted techniques at some universities have, have moved on to other states and, and people who survived these challenges and created policy innovations have been sought after in, in larger promotions, like becoming presidents of, of universities and other places as well. Um, there's a very, I mean, as this isn't the topic of my book, but has been of, of others, there's very strong commitment across higher ed to racial diversity in student populations. So commitment to that and, and policy change in the face of bans uh, has been helpful in, in, on people's resumes. The second thing I would expect to see happen is that Students for a Fair Admission in 2003 is, is just the beginning. I think we're going to see more litigation and more court challenges, both about the means, the policy innovations that universities employ in responding to these bans, um, whatever, you know, software or uh, different review processes or substitute variables, whatever it is, are those um, truly race neutral? Are they, they constitutionally legitimate? The second area that I would expect to see challenges over is what else? So um, can you use uh, race in financial aid or merit scholarships? Can you use race for recruitment programs where you're bringing uh, underrepresented students to campus? Is everyone banned from the use of race? There was kind of a, a important footnote in the Students for Fair Admissions case that the case did not apply to our nation's military academies. Are they still allowed to practice affirmative action? So I think we're going to, this is the, just the beginning of litigation over university admissions policies. Boy, you are listening to the New Books Network. We've been speaking with Lauren S. Foley, author of The Extraordinarily Timely, On the Basis of Race, How Higher Education Navigates Affirmative Action Policies from NYU Press. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.